Maybe we don't even need a microphone, I don't know. Welcome to the Bali International Club. And my name is Dr. Trinkline. I'd like to talk to you about astronomy this evening. And the program will be divided into several parts. The first segment of the presentation will be on astronomy in general. We're going to talk about eclipses, and I want to take you on a little expedition to Siberia in a little while with pictures as soon as it gets dark enough. We're going to do some stargazing. We're going to have some wine and cheese, Rod, right? We're going to have a question and answer period. So what I'd like to start out with, first of all, is a little story of the solar system. Of course, first I should tell you perhaps what it's like to teach astronomy. Now, how much experience in astronomy education people sitting here have had, I'm not sure. But it's not always the most pleasant thing, especially since it sometimes gets a little less, not just astronomical, but mathematical. And I was returning a test in astronomy the other day, which was not all that successful, and I was exasperated and said, I hope uh, we're going to do better in the future. I wish all the dumbbells in this class would please rise. But nobody got to their feet. And finally, to my great astonishment, one of the students in the back row got up and I said, do you mean to say you admit you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, but I hate to see you standing there by yourself. <laughs> so teaching in the sciences is sometimes mathematical, sometimes frustrating, and sometimes it's time to take off for Florida and forget the whole thing for a few days. We're going to start first with a little demonstration. I need some volunteers here. I see Rob Fick's volunteering right away. And we're going to establish the scale of the solar system and the universe. Because I find that in a great many instances, people have a completely distorted view of just how big or little things are in space. So Rob, if you'll come up front center, please. And I want to give Rob this disk to represent the Earth. Rob, you're going to hold the whole world in your hands right there. And we're going to get someone else to take the moon in their hands. Right, Brian Cook, there he is. Okay. Now notice I've carefully chosen the sizes of these two objects because, as many people know, the moon is about one-fourth the diameter of the Earth. Now, it's Rob and Brian. Brian or Ryan? Brian. Brian, okay. What I'd like you to do, Rob, you hold the moon, uh, the Earth up so that everybody can see it very clearly. And Brian, would you take the moon and put it about as far away as you think the moon should be on that scale? On the Earth. Yeah. Think of where it is in the sky. Okay, that's very nice. Now let's see the people in the audience who think that that's about the right distance. How many think it's too close? How many don't think? Okay, a little farther away they want it. Farther away. Let's see the hands. Let's keep the hands up, people who think it's still too close. All right, keep moving. Let's see if those hands come down. You don't have to go up the sky, really. Just go out straight. <laughs> Farther away. I still see hands there. Keep moving. One, two hands are down. Two hands are still up. One other hand up. One person still hanging there. Keep going. Turn the corner there. Hand is still up. 
Okay, his hand is down. Very knowledgeable, sir. That's the right distance. I paced it off before. This is the scale distance of the moon and earth. If this is the size of the earth, then that's the size of the moon. Now, the reason many people have the wrong impression is because we see mountains and maps and so on where it's real close. And when our astronauts had to launch from this thing here and get out to there, it looks a little more like an astronomical feat from here. Okay, now we need more volunteers. You can come back again there, Brian, because we're going to just imagine, or you can leave, why don't you leave the moon over there? Leave the moon at the intersection there, those two sidewalks. And uh, Rob, you can put the earth down on the platform here. We've got this scale established. Now the next thing, don't go away yet, you're not nearly done. Huh. Rob uh, took my course in astronomy, he's still working on extra credit, and your grade's going up right along. Okay, now Rob and Brian, you stay there too, because we may need you again. I want you now, Rob, to give us an impression of how big you think the sun is on this scale, with your arms. Oh, it's not, I couldn't do it. It's All right, it takes two of you? Right. All right, you and Brian? Yeah, I'll tell you how big it is. About as big as this uh, section around here. A hundred times bigger than that. A hundred see, now you did remember something in this course. A hundred times bigger than this. In other words, the scale model of the sun would take up the entire space all the way back there to the swimming pool and around here. Now we have a scale model of the sun. Now the question is, would you take the earth again, Rob? We'll leave the moon where it is, just keep that distance from the moon there. And now take it out where you think it should be from this sun here at the swimming pool. That's way out there by the houses. By the houses. How many think it should be farther? I ain't the only guy Okay. How far, sir? Where should he take this disc for the earth if the sun were right here, the size of this patio up to the swimming pool? Okay, very fine. A quarter to a half a mile away. So where are we in a half a mile down how far? Oh, we're down to about the, uh, the Sheridan Lakeside? No, it's kind of lost. Okay, that's where the Earth belongs, the distance from the Sun. Now only one more thing on this scale model before we start talking about some objects in the solar system, and that is beyond that Sun, here in front of the swimming pool, where should the next star go? We're going to see stars later on through this magnificent Celestron telescope over here. We're going to see Saturn's rings tonight, which for the first time this spring are in a very advantageous position for viewing. Where should the next star go as big as this patio here? Okay, finally we got him. The next star belongs in China. Okay. <laughs> All right, thank you very much for your help. I want to have China. people keep that scale model in mind now, that the Earth is about this size, the moon is over where that yellow disk is on the sidewalk, the sun would be over a half a mile away, and the next star beyond that would be in China. Now, would it be this size or wouldn't it? That is the question we're going to address partly this evening. How can we tell distances, sizes, and so on in space, even though not even the most powerful telescope on Earth can magnify any star outside of our own sun. A lot of people have the impression that that instrument over here, the Celestron 8, which magnifies things 
much as I would say about, depending on the eyepiece we use on it, several hundred times what you can see with your naked eye. Neither that instrument, nor the 200-inch on Mount Palomar, nor the 260-inch in the Soviet Union can magnify a single star. Telescopes are not for magnifying the stars. Telescopes are not magnifiers. Telescopes are light gatherers. The reason for using a telescope is not to make the star look bigger than it looks, but to make it look brighter, and to make it possible to see a star that you cannot see with the naked eye. The stars are so far away that no man-made instrument of the present time is able to make it look any larger. We can make the moon look larger, we can make Saturn look larger tonight, we can see the rings. We're going to see tonight what Galileo saw for the first time in the human species, the rings around Saturn. But no telescope has yet been developed that makes the star any larger to the view through the telescope than it is to the eye. Then the question arises, how do we know what a star is like? How do we know how large stars are? How do we even know how far away they are? Well, tonight and tomorrow evening, I'd like to divide the presentation into two rough parts. This first part of the presentation, at least. I want to talk this evening about some of the closer objects in space, about some rather rarely known facts and figures about the objects that are closest to us, the moon and the sun. And then tomorrow evening, I want to go to the presently known edges of the universe. How far out do we think it goes? What do we think will happen to it? And when will that occur? So the first object beyond our own Earth is the moon. But before we leave the Earth, you know what got Galileo into trouble? And Galileo was in the New York Times again yesterday, 350 years after his death. Big headline in pictures. Why? Because in Rome, right now, they are retrying Galileo. There are astronomers from all over the world in Rome retrying Galileo. Galileo was tried in the 17th century and found guilty of believing that the Earth revolves around the sun. He was found guilty. He was threatened with torture. And after seeing the torture instruments, he said, yes, he indeed sees now that the Earth does not revolve around the sun. Now, the people who condemned him, the, the church body that condemned him, feels so bad about this that they are retrying him on orders of Pope John Paul II to see whether they can find a way of saving this embarrassment of condemning Galileo for something that everyone believes today to be true. And if you have a copy of the New York Times yesterday, it's very enlightening to read this article to see how scientists today feel about that trial. Was he tried fairly? Was he found guilty on the basis of information that was available to astronomers at that time? I want to go into that question again tomorrow because the question really involves science and religion. And since I have spent a great many years investigating that topic around the world, I want to bring up Galileo again tomorrow and see where we stand today on this question of whether science and religion really need to be in conflict and how the leading scientists of the world that I've interviewed on this question feel about it in 1983. But before we leave the Earth for our little trip through space, which will eventually, when it gets dark enough, take us to Siberia on the screen here where we just returned from the solar eclipse, I want to ask you a question that may sound very simple and yet doesn't have all that simple an answer. If someone were to ask you to prove to them why it is that we think that the world spins on its axis, what could you tell them? How could you prove to a person that the Earth is turning? 
aside from listening to soap opera as the world turns. How do we know that the earth is turning? You look at the sun rising and setting. Well, didn't they look at the sun rising and setting for thousands of years before somebody said the earth is turning? Yes. Because from sitting here, you cannot tell whether the earth is turning or whether the sun is moving. So what's left? How can we prove that the earth is turning? That was a question that was not answered until the 19th century. And the man who finally answered the question had the effect that I'm now going to tell you about named after him. His name was Coriolis. Coriolis said, if you go into the bathroom and fill your sink with water till it's, and wait till it's very calm, do that tonight and wherever you are, fill it and wait till it's very calm and then fill the, uh, pull the plug out very slowly. Don't disturb the water while you're doing it. And watch the water go down the drain. The water will go down the drain counterclockwise. And the reason is that the earth is spinning under the water. The first thing I did when I got to Australia for an eclipse was to go into the bathroom of the hotel where we were staying, fill it with water, fill the sink with water, and pull the drain, and sure enough, it went down clockwise. Because in the southern hemisphere, the water goes down the drain clockwise, and in the northern hemisphere, it goes down counterclockwise. This proves that the earth is spinning. If there is some other explanation for the water going down, no one has yet come up with it. Because the water spinning in the bath and in the sink is the same phenomenon that makes tornadoes and cyclones and weather systems in the northern hemisphere go counterclockwise. A low pressure area in the northern hemisphere goes counterclockwise. A tornado goes counterclockwise. In the southern hemisphere, a twister goes clockwise. This is a proof of the rotation of the Earth. Another fellow took a large pendulum, a man by the name of Foucault in Paris. He hung a large weight from a long wire and set it in motion in the morning. And when he came back an hour later, the weight was swinging in a different direction. The Earth was spinning under it. You can tell time with it. If you've been in the United Nations building, they've got one swinging in the lobby. If you've been in the Pantheon in Paris, they've got one swinging there. They have one swinging in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, in the Franklin Institute, in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and so on. You can do it yourself. Hang a large pail of sand from the overhanging eave out here and set it in motion and come back an hour later and see which way it's spinning. If the rope doesn't have a twist in it that makes it swing in a different direction, it's an absolutely untwisted uh, filament, strong wire. You can prove the rotation of the Earth in the bathroom or outside under the roof. That is actually the only absolute proof that the Earth is in motion. If the Earth would stop, we'd take off into space. Yes, that would prove it for good. We'd all take off. <laughs> or if it would speed up. If instead of going about 700 miles an hour, as it is doing right here, and would pick up to about 1,000 miles an hour, we'd all notice it because we'd all fly backwards. Or the clouds would move very rapidly, or the wind would start blowing with tremendous speed. But with constant motion, that is the proof. Now, why do I make such a big fuss about that? For the simple reason that when we learn science in school, we are very often misled to the conclusion that whatever it says in the printed volume is the truth. I write science textbooks for Hold Reinhardt and Winston, physics and astronomy. And to my dismay, students who use my own textbooks think that everything that's written there is true. 
If that were true, I wouldn't have to revise it. Thank God I have to revise it every so often because new information is coming out all the time. The first thing students have to learn the first day of class is that whatever you learn in science is open to question. Nothing is absolutely true because it's all based on circumstantial evidence. It's all based on experiments in a laboratory, either in a room or out in, under the stars, and it's never absolutely true. And as soon as a person starts questioning a conclusion in the scientific world, a Nobel Prize winner told me, that person has lost the most important ingredient of research. You have to remain skeptical about everything you learn in science. I'll talk more about this again tomorrow evening when it comes to the relationship between other approaches to truth as compared with the scientific method. Science has given us a great deal. Technology has done wonders since the Industrial Revolution. But it has always happened because someone has questioned what is now happening. Otherwise, we would still be driving old-fashioned cars and we wouldn't be on the moon because people would say, I think we can do something different from the way it's being done. Edison, who had probably more patents than any other human being who ever lived, used to tell his people in his laboratory, there is a better way to do it, find it. That is the secret of scientific success. Well, let's leave the Earth now and the spinning of the Earth. I'm going to give over the other topic I had about the Earth because it's really very complex. We'll come back to it when we look through the telescope. How would you prove, how would you convince a person that the Earth is going around the sun? We just found out the way to tell that it's spinning is to fill the bathtub. How can you convince a person that the Earth is going around the sun? I'll let you think about that for a time because we'll come back to it later. The most common answer, and I'll tell you right now in a multiple choice question, the most common wrong answer is winter and summer. That's not true. Winter and summer do not depend on the earth going around the sun. Neither does it depend on how close the sun is to the earth. Because as it happens, we're closer to the sun in winter than we are in summer. We're actually farther away from the sun now than we are in January. So it's not the distance to the sun, it's not the earth going around the sun that makes the seasons. This could all happen if the sun were moving. There is another much more difficult and sophisticated reason. And the people who tried Galileo, and Galileo himself, did not have the information to prove that the earth was going around the sun. Galileo's beliefs were not based on facts. It was a hunch on his part. And the people who condemned him had a different hunch, that's all. It was not till much, much later that someone found examples of things happening in space that demanded the explanation that the Earth is going around the sun. But let's leave the Earth and get to the next object. Somebody took the moon over there. You better check it out, it belongs to Celestron. It was sitting on the sidewalk there. Now, Florida is, of course, the perfect place to talk about what we learned by going to the moon. The question that students and a lot of other people ask after the moon expeditions that began the landings in 1969 is, what do we now know about the moon that we didn't know before we went there? 
The moon won't be out for viewing until much later this evening, but if you look at it through a telescope, you see things that you cannot possibly see with the naked eye. Galileo, again, was the first person to see that. He looked up there and he saw dark splotches that we can see with the naked eye, and he said they looked like oceans to him, so he named them oceans. And we still call them oceans. The Latin word for ocean is mare. The first landing on the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin, was at Tranquility Base. Tranquility Base was named after the ocean that Galileo himself named, Mare Tranquilitatis, because to Galileo it looked like water. It looked like a body of water, and so he called it an ocean. Now, we knew all that from Galileo's time on, that there were dark areas and there were craters and there were rays going out, so what did we learn by going up there? Well, what I like to call what's new on the moon really boils down to about three categories. And in all three cases, the important thing about going to the moon was that we found out that many of the things we thought were true about the moon are not really true. So going to the moon for billions of dollars, I think, contributed this very important contribution to our scientific knowledge, and that is it punctured a lot of previously held notions. And it reinforced what I said before, that unless we're willing to change our ideas, not just in astronomy, but about every scientific endeavor, we're not going to advance. The first thing that was punctured about the moon was its age. Before we went to the moon, the generally held theory was that the moon was much younger than the Earth. There wasn't any real solid evidence for that, but the going theory was that the moon joined the solar system later, and so therefore was younger. There was even a theory that the moon came out of the Earth. If you take the moon and bring it back to Earth, you'll find that it just about fits into the Pacific Ocean. It's about the same size as the Pacific. The Pacific is round. Around the Pacific are a lot of disturbances and earthquakes and volcanoes and things. It's called the Ring of Fire. And the theory was that the moon may have left there, and it's still settling down. Now, this I'm not making this name up because it sounds rather sexist, but the name of the theory was the Daughter Theory that the moon came from the Earth, it came flying out, and that it came from probably a younger part of the Earth's layers than the interior, and therefore was much younger. Then there was another theory about the moon, and that is that sometime after the Earth was there, in its travels around in space with the sun, it attracted an object in space and drew it into orbit, and that the, the moon then became a satellite of the Earth, and that is known as the wife theory, the capture of another object in space. Going to the moon and testing the rocks that came back, 800-some pounds American and about 80 pounds Russian rocks, and dating them with radiocarbon and other methods, it turned out that not only is the moon just as old as the Earth is, but that many of the rocks that were brought back are actually older than the oldest rocks that have been identified on Earth. Now, aside from the question of how they can be older, at least the belief that the moon is a younger body was completely overthrown, and we now believe that it's about the same age. The second thing about the moon is that it is lopsided. 
We did not know this until we got up there and started doing studies of the gravitational attraction in various parts of the moon. And the technical term for this is mass cons. A mass con is a New English word which comes from a concentration of the two English words, mass concentration. A mass con, we believe, is an object that has embedded itself in the moon from outer space. And the dark areas that we see from the Earth are really the lava flows that occurred after this large object hit the moon and pulverized and melted its surface and made the moon heavier on the side where it hit. And so the reason we always see the same side of the moon, you never see the other side from the Earth, is that once upon a time in the distant past, a large body of, a group of large objects hit the moon and these objects embedded themselves and made the moon heavier on this side and so that the center of the moon is not the gravimetric center. So the moon has become locked into its orbit around the Earth so that one day on the moon is the same length as one month on the moon. The moon goes around the Earth and turns on its axis at exactly the same time, 27 and a third Earth days. This is not particularly unique to the moon, by the way. There are other objects in space that probably about the same time have been hit by objects from outer space and have been locked into orbit around their parent body. So the moon is the same age as the Earth. The moon is lopsided. And while this is not exactly a finding from the moon, I want to throw it, and when going to the moon, I want to inject it at this point because if the moon does become visible, it's something that a great many people ask about and something that does not have the simplest of explanations. And that is, why does the moon look so much larger when it's on the horizon as when it is overhead? <laughs> Margaret and I were at an Indian powwow not so long ago, and after they did their rain dance and whatever, I, I went up to one of these chiefs and I said, I don't think that you fellows are really savages from around the country. I think you're doing this for the tourists, and you're probably a medical doctor, and you're a high school principal and all that. And they said, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's pretty good money during the summer. But while you're here, they said, and since you teach astronomy, will you explain something that the Indians are always discussing around the campfires? And that is, why does the moon look so big on the horizon? Is it really bigger on the horizon, or is that some kind of trick? Well, the last part of that answer is correct. It's a trick of the eyes. And the best way to prove it is to take a piece of paper and to roll it into a cylinder. And the next time you see the moon, you roll it up until when you hold this up to your eye, the moon just fills the cylinder. Then you tape it shut. And then you wait three or four hours till the moon gets up higher and hold that piece of paper up again, and you'll see that it just exactly fills the cylinder. So the moon looking larger on the horizon is an illusion. It's not larger. It seems to be larger. It's not atmospheric refraction. It's a trick of your eyes. Another way to destroy the illusion is to look at it standing on your head. Everybody who stands on their head and looks at the moon says, yeah, now it looks the right side. Now, why does it look larger? Well, the answer is that the sky does not look round. If you look up and then look at the horizon, almost everyone, if I would ask you to tell me which way looks farther, almost everyone would say that, yes, the straight up part of the sky looks depressed. It looks like it's closer to us than the horizon. 
And probably that's because at the horizon you have things to compare. You have trees, you have boats and buildings and things, and you say, yeah, that's a long ways off. But when you look straight up, there's nothing there for comparison purposes. And consequently, since the dome of the sky is not round to the human eye, since it's elongated toward the horizon, if you take the same size disk and hold it up against a nearer sky straight up and then against a faraway sky, obviously the same size disk will look larger when compared with a faraway horizon. That is, at the present time, the best explanation of the moon illusion. And a lot of studies have been made to see whether this actually is borne out with photography, and it is true. So this whole romantic impression that the moon is as big as a big piece of pie and all this there, and people saying foolish things as a result that they regret the rest of their life, is an illusion. And the next time you feel like doing that, stand in your head, and then make the promises and see whether they are somewhat more reserved. One last thing about the moon, and that is, just like everything else in the universe, it's a temporary thing. The moon is not stable. One of the first things that happened after they got back to the command module from Armstrong and Aldrin coming back from connecting the LEM is to turn the LEM around, and those of us on Long Island who watched the LEM being built hated to think of this. They took the LEM and crashed it back into the moon in many millions of dollars. For what purpose? For the simple purpose of seeing whether the moon vibrates. The same thing we do when we prospect for oil. You explode something, you set up seismographs, and you see where are the vibrations going. And to the great surprise of the people in NASA, when LEM was crashed back into the moon, the whole moon vibrated like a bell, like a bell under tension. And so we think that the plate tectonics of the moon are in a much more temporary condition than the same sort of thing on Earth. That the moon, for a number of reasons, may not be long for this universe. Now when we say long, of course, we're talking in astronomical terms. How long does anything take to come and to disappear again? Well, there's another reason why the moon is leaving us, and that is the tides. The moon and the Earth, the gravitational attraction between the two, draws the water on the near side toward the moon, and on the far side, it pulls the Earth away from the water. You have a high tide on both sides of the Earth at the same time, because on one side it's pulling the water, and on the other side it's pulling the land. A lot of students have trouble with this. They say they can understand why the water is piling up toward the moon. But why is the water piling up 180 degrees on the other side of the Earth? Well, it's all a matter of Newton's law of gravitation. On the near side, the gravitation is the strongest, and there the water is being pulled away from the Earth. On the far side, the gravitation is the weakest, and the Earth is being pulled away from the water. So there are two high tides and two low tides at any one time. Now, it takes a lot of energy to pull those tides out. Something we also learned in Tahiti, coming back from an eclipse not too long ago, is that there are certain places in the world where there are no tides at all. There are places where the water does not rise and fall in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Right in Tahiti, right in front of our bungalow there, the water did not go up and down all day long. Why? That's not so easy to explain, especially after you've taught your students that the water goes up and down all over the earth. So you do what every person does when he gets caught in a bind in the classroom, you assign a report. And you say, come back tomorrow, 
And in the meantime, you look for somebody else who has a better answer. So we found a professor there at the university, and he explained it, which uh, during the question and answer period, maybe we can get into it. It's very technical. But the tides take energy. The tides provide energy. On Long Island, we have tidal mills. Where the water comes in, they close the gates, the water runs out, it grinds corn, the tourists buy it. So the energy is tremendous. And this rubs on the earth. And it slows the earth down. The day is getting longer. You may not have noticed this, but whenever on New Year's Eve they lower the ball in Times Square, they check with the planetarium. And the astronomer at the planetarium says, hold it one second. The day has just got a second longer. And they let it come down. Because the earth is slowing down, the day is getting slightly longer. In the last 2,000 years, it has added up to about 15 minutes. We're about 15 minutes behind the time we would be if there were no moon. Because the moon's tides and the tidal action between moon and earth have slowed the earth down. Now, as this continues over the years, the moon will begin to recede because of the interaction with the earth and will go farther and farther away. This theory, by the way, is not something new. It's something that was first proposed by the son of Charles Darwin, who was an astronomer and a biologist. Then when the moon gets far enough out, the tides will stop. And then the moon will come back and the whole sequence will begin over again. Well, there is only one other body I'd like to talk about briefly before we get to the pictures. It's getting almost dark enough so we can see Siberia. And I want to have some questions and answers before we do that also. I just want to say a word or two about the sun. And what I've said about the Earth and the moon being temporary is especially true of the sun. There is a great deal of concern about the sun's behavior at the present time. Now, there isn't a great deal we could do about it, I guess unless there's another place in the solar system or way beyond that where we could go if the sun started acting up. I had a discussion in class the other day where somebody said, why don't we go to the sun and study it more closely with a rocket ship? And another student said, you dummy, because it's too hot. And the first guy said, well, why don't we go at nighttime? That's the same student, I think, who said that the sun was the backside of the moon. But the sun has been studied intensely, not close up, but through telescopes and spectroscopes for many hundreds of years. In an eclipse cruise we took in 1977 in the Pacific, one of the people on board, one of the research scientists doing lecturing, there were about 20 of us keeping the people busy for 17 days while we were rendezvousing out there in the middle of the Pacific, one of them was Dr. John Eddy. Dr. John Eddy is probably the single most important authority on the sun in the world today. And Dr. Eddy, who has published this since 1977 in a great many periodicals and in several books now, believes that the sun has cycles and that these cycles are getting more severe and that the sun may be on the verge of completely changing its normal behavior. Now, why do we think that? In fact, there's a book out just recently called, Is the Sun Dying? Now, before we can figure out why it's dying, we have to first try and figure out why it's living. What makes the energy of the sun? Why is the sun shining? That question was not addressed until rather recently. How can that much energy come from the sun? 
First, they thought it was the compression of the gravity of the sun pushing it into its center and making a tremendous amount of heat. But that would not last nearly long enough for what we think is the lifetime of the sun. Then along came Dr. Hans Bethe at Cornell University and said that the sun is a great big hydrogen bomb, that the interior of the sun is converting hydrogen to helium, and in the process, some of the matter of the hydrogen, instead of becoming helium, is converted into energy, like in an atomic explosion, and that this process furnishes the intense heat. According to Bethe's theory, about four million tons of the sun are disappearing every second. Two snaps of the finger, and four million tons of the sun are gone. That's the presently held theory. Now, lest you become worried how long the sun is still going to last, the estimates of its mass are something like 2 times 10 to the 30th kilograms. Or if you do it in tons, you take 2 and put 27 zeros after it, tons. Now, if 4 million of those tons go every second, how long will the sun last? Well, really millions of years, because 27 zeros is a great many zeros. That's a great deal more than any person can even visualize, even with the national debt. We haven't reached 27 zeros yet, but each zero is another 10 times what it was before. If you pile up that many dollar bills from here, you'd get beyond the sun. So the sun will not disappear in the immediate future from lack of material. What we, what we are afraid of is that the process will not continue in a steady manner for all those years. And why not? There are two reasons. One is that the sunspots that we see, and Galileo got in trouble for that too, by the way. He looked up there and he said, I see spots. And the people said, you were condemning him. No, there are no spots up there. You're imagining that. God made the sun perfect, and therefore there are no spots on it. And Galileo said, why don't you look through this telescope and see if you see the spots or not? And they looked through and said, it is amazing that Satan has created spots on the telescope. You see, if you want to believe something, you'll believe it, no matter what the evidence to the contrary is. Well, the fault was not with God's creation of the sun, but with our understanding. The spots in the sun, which have now been numbered and counted for some 300 years, have regular sequences. Every 11 years, more spots, then less spots. 11 years, more spots again. There have been a great many attempts to correlate these spots with behavior of people on Earth. I have seen graphs correlating these spots with the stock market. I have lost money in the stock market trying to correlate it. I have taken some French wine off a shelf because a guy said the sunspot cycle says this is a good wine. This is a good sunspot here. I have seen graphs done by my students that correlate teenage suicides with sunspot cycles. And they correlate pretty well. You see, in science, you don't throw evidence out. You gather more. You gather more. You don't say to another person, your idea is stupid because someday it may be the correct explanation. We don't know. We don't know what makes the sunspots. We don't know why they come in cycles. We don't know what effect they have on the Earth. We do know that if a sunspot is pointed at the Earth, it could be lethal to astronauts in a spaceship at that time. 
There is a tremendous amount of material leaving the sun all the time. You'll see in the pictures in the Siberian eclipse that the sun doesn't quit at all where we think it does. During an eclipse, you see much more of the sun than you ordinarily see. The sun isn't some far distant object. The sun is here. We're inside it. The outer layer of the sun washes past us and pushes a tail out of the earth so that if you could see the earth from outer space with the proper film, you would see a tail very much like the tail of a comet leaving the earth because the sun is pushing it out, the solar wind as we call it. Well, what Dr. John Eddy found in doing research on sunspots is that there was a period in the history of the world where there were no sunspots. There was a 150 year period where no spots were sighted. No one knows why. But what Dr. Eddy and others are now beginning to feel is that this gap in the sunspot sequence itself will be repeated in the future and that it is part of a larger picture of the sun's total history. And the second thing that has led us to believe that the current theory on the sun's energy is incorrect is what is known as the case of the missing neutrinos. Now what is a neutrino? A neutrino is a little object smaller than an atom, it's inside an atom temporarily, that has no electric charge and that is so penetrating that it can go through solid rock, that it can go right through the earth without even losing much speed in the process, and so it is a very difficult thing to capture. But the reason it's important about the sun is that if Hans Bethe's theory of the sun is correct, then the nuclear process that is making the sun's energy is producing billions and billions of neutrinos. And these neutrinos are being showered into all parts of space, including the Earth. Now the way to tell whether this is happening is to build a neutrino trap. Now, a neutrino trap cannot be purchased at the 7-Eleven because only the U.S. government has enough money to build a neutrino trap. Should we build a neutrino trap? What kind of scientific research can this country afford to do? Can we afford to do everything? That's not a scientific question. And that, again, is the kind of question I want to address at greater length tomorrow when we talk about the people's views around the Earth about the borderline between science and other areas of learning. Who should determine whether we should build a neutrino track? The scientists? Should the taxpayers just go along with it when some scientist says we need $500 billion for a neutrino track? And then when you ask him if you built this neutrino track and don't find any neutrinos, was that worth it? Now a research scientist might tell you whether something is worth it or not is not a research scientist's business. A scientist's business is to find out information about the universe. Applying it is somebody else's business. Well, my feeling is that we've got to educate the public in astronomy and in the other sciences as thoroughly as possible so that we can have an informed citizenry if we're going to increase the budget for the space program, which I sincerely hope we will, beyond the 1% level it's now struggling under, our federal budget, it should be done by an informed citizenry, not by some ivory tower people. Science is no longer a sacred cow. 
It was at one time. Pronouncements of science were accepted without question. Well, then problems arose. We had pollution. We had nuclear accidents. We had overpopulation. And the people became disenchanted with science and said, wait a minute, we shouldn't let you guys do everything. We better look into this. Well, a neutrino trap was built a mile under the earth in South Dakota. It consisted of 50,000 gallons of cleaning fluid. Why? Because a neutrino, when it hits cleaning fluid, will change one of the chlorine atoms in the cleaning fluid into argon. And then if you flush the entire 50,000 gallon tank out and look for the one atom of argon, you know that a neutrino went through. Well, the answer was that not enough neutrinos were trapped in the neutrino trap in South Dakota. And Dr. Eddy and others now believe that it's entirely possible that one of two things is taking place. Either the theory of how the sun is making its energy is all wrong, and we have to find something else to explain why the stars are shining, or the sun has already gone out. If the sun is out on the inside, and no more neutrinos are being formed, how long will it take for the heat to get to the surface and for the whole business to go to a cake of ice? We know that just a few degrees drop in temperature on the Earth, average-wise, would produce another ice age. When will that occur? What can we do? Can you feed the sun? Or is the theory wrong? And is it worth studying? Well, these are some of the questions that scientists address when they go to solar eclipses. Now, before I take you on an expedition to show what can be seen and learned there, maybe this is time, Rob, if we had just a little breather here and had a question period. I see Venus. If everybody will turn around 180 degrees, Venus is in the sky right now. And what you're looking at right now was the first proof that the Earth is going around the sun. Not with the naked eye you can't prove it, but through this telescope you'll see after a little while